Well, take a moment. Now, I'm going to give you permission. Take a moment to look around. Look around. You can smile, wave, grimace, whatever. Look around at the people around you. Okay, look around. Now, you online, do the same thing. Just maybe you could pull out the church roster. That'd be a good idea. Or however you have it. And think about the people in your family. These, this is your family. Okay? This is your family. The people that were in first service, the people that were in second service, this is your family. Those people up in the booth. Now, now, there are some people in this family with whom you just get along naturally, right? I mean, you're just drawn to them. I mean, if anybody's in the four, you're there, you're, you're just going to go over to them first. It's just natural for you to kind of hang out together and talk. You see things, you see eye to eye. You, you can communicate easy with them, and, and it's just your friends, right? You just, you know what? That's not abnormal. That's a good thing. But it's not abnormal. It's, there's not really not anything necessarily spiritual about that. Okay? There are other people in this family that you looked at that maybe are a little harder for you to get along with. I mean, you get along, but, you know, to really know them and to spend time with them and to enjoy them, they're, they're just, maybe it's harder to communicate with them, or maybe they have different lifestyles or values, or, or uh, they, it's just hard to communicate. But they're part of your family, right? They're part of your family. Well, today, I'd like to examine with you the power of a church where people are not similar. Where people are not similar. Uh, in, a, in the ABF that I teach, we've been studying through the book of Acts, and I, I realize we're not quite at Pentecost Sunday, if you're following the liturgical calendar, but I'd like to spend a few, uh, few minutes with, our, with, with you today in Acts chapter 2. But let's go back to, the, to Luke, the last chapter of Luke, and kind of catch a context here. Uh, Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, and let's read the final verses there where Jesus sets this up, and uh, Luke actually records this. In verse 45, Luke 24, 45. Now, Jesus has risen, and he's giving his final instructions to the... He spent about 40 days with them, and he's giving the, his final instructions to his disciples before he ascends. And he's, it says, Luke record, records, that he opened... Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He went back to the Old Testament, and he drew out some of those passages that, that talked about what had just happened. Thus it is written, he said to them, that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. You saw it happen. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them as far out as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them, and while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. So that's Luke's gospel, and then he continues, the sequel, Acts, right? 
because Luke wrote them both. In Acts chapter 1, if you slip over there, we find that they're gathered in Jerusalem, and Jesus re, uh, Luke rehearses for us uh, with a little more detail the, the ascension of Jesus in chapter 1. Then they choose Matthias to replace Judas, who betrayed Jesus and is no longer with them. And then we get to uh, chapter 2. But they're, they're waiting. They're, they're there in Jerusalem, and they're waiting. So Jesus has ascended, and 10 days now have gone by. 10 days have gone by, okay? And they're, 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 they're waiting, and then it happened. And let's read chapter 2, verse 1 and following. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, languages, as the Spirit gave them other utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, of the multi at, at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own na native language? Parth Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and, and, and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, oh, they're filled with new wine. <clears throat> well, the day was Pentecost. Okay? Pentecost means 50th, the 50th day after the first harvested sheaf of the barley harvest, uh, or the 50th day after the first Sunday after Passover. So uh, among the Hebrew-speaking people, um, it was known as the Feast of Weeks, and you can see that in Leviticus 23. It was one of the three great agricultural festivals held annually to acknowledge God's goodness, the cycle of seasons that he has created, the fruitfulness of his good earth. So historically, it was a time, the time leading up to Pentecost was a time, a period of, of preparation and anticipation. The long winter had ended, the first fruits of the winter harvest had begun, Spring was here, things were popping up around, newness was in the air, and hope, hope was aris arising again, right? Kind of like right now, and like my drive over here this morning. There was, there are there's some blooming trees now, right? And there's some flowers around, and oh, it's just glorious. Well, verse 1 tells us that they're all together in one place. Verse 2 says they're sitting in a house together. So who was there? Who was in this group um, anticipating this day? Well, we're not sure. Uh, uh, verse 15 says that there was about 120 people all in the whole company. Whether they were all 100, 120 there or just the 12, I'm not sure. But you can just imagine the, the, the conversations. You know, 
been 10 days since he left. I mean, seven is a whole number. Now it's 10. Well, he told us that he would send the... Hey, he told us to wait. Yeah, but he said, not many days from now. You know, he's made us wait before for stuff. And he's always come through. Well, I don't know how the conversations went. But then it happened. Right? The wind came in. There were audible sounds. There was there's the sound of a rushing wind. Now, wind can be very loud, and wind can be very powerful. And interestingly, if you go back through, we won't go through this today, but if you go back through the Old Testament, you're going to see a strong connection between wind and spirit. Wind and the spirit, okay? The breath of God that we talked about, we, we sang about this morning. Uh, the God filled Adam. And Eve with his breath, his hua, and, and so forth. And there's a strong connection between wind. And it, you see, wind is very powerful. God calls Elijah out of the cave. And he says, stand here while I come by. And the wind comes by. And the wind comes and rips apart the, apart the mountain and, and breaks the rocks in pieces. Wind can be very strong. And it's connected to the spirit. We hear in John 3 about the connection between wind and where it blows and how the spirit is like the wind, right? So there's a lot of connections here. So maybe they're thinking, as they're thinking, as they're maybe perhaps probably looking back on it, thinking, "Wow, what a connection!" And thinking back of some of those Sabbath stories, those Saturdays in their Saturday school, you know, that they studied back back then as children, and and making the connections. So they were audible signs. They were visible, visual signs. Divided tongues, fire that came and rested on each of each of them. And don't asked me to explain that. But it, it was, it was an unusual phenomenon. But in Matthew 3, verse 11, John the Baptist had prophesied that Jesus would, Jesus would baptize them with the Holy Spirit and with fire, right? So you see the connections. There's connections with the past. All of this is meshing with what, what God had already revealed to them in the Old Testament and even up through John the Baptist's prophecies. So there's verbal signs uh, again, something prophesied long before this time uh, by the prophet Joel, who Peter quotes later in the sermon. And we see that uh, each one is speaking in languages unknown to them as the Spirit gives them utterance. And notice that the Spirit just didn't blow into the room, didn't just blow into the room. He filled each one of them with the Holy Spirit. They were full of the Holy Spirit, so full that it overflowed primarily in their speech. Okay, they were full to overflowing in their speech, and they began to speak. Uh, this, uh, this is what, part of what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit. Our speech changes. We become more bold, powerful. Our speech becomes fruitful. Our speech becomes, renders supernatural, spiritual results when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. So none of this is normal that's been going on. None of this is normal. It's a bit unusual. It's, it's, it's wild, I would say. And God is introducing here something new. It's not totally disconnected from the past. Lots of roots in the past. But there's something new going on here, something dynamically new. God was doing something here that he had not done before. Now, this new thing cannot be contained. 
So this, this happens in this room, but then it quickly, the party quickly spills out into the street and they start to talk to people. And who do they bump into? At that time, for the Feast of Pentecost, uh, many Jews and proselytes, proselytes are non-Jewish converts to Judaism, uh, they had gathered in Jerusalem for this festival. Some lived there, some were just visiting for the festival. Uh, but Luke tells us that they gathered from every nation under heaven. That's a lot of nationalities even back then, right? So God had gathered people from all the, cor all the corners of the then-known world, and notice who was in the crowd. And I want to show you some maps. Look at this. First we have Parthenians from Parthia. Okay? Now, I'm not remembering my exact geography, but that's probably part of Iran today. And, uh, and maybe even over into touching into Pakistan. Then some people from Media, this is Babylon and Mesopotamia right here, okay? Media, way up here. This is, this is eastern, southeastern, or central, I'm sorry, south central uh, Asia. Media, and then let's go to the next map. And then it says people from Elam, again, east of Mesopotamia, Babylon, Babylon Elam. Then there's some people from the Mesopotamian era, area, Judeans. We go up here to Cappadocia, Pontus, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Asia. All of these are mentioned, right? Then we go down here to Egypt and North Africa, over into Cyrene. Way up here into Rome, there were people from Rome, Jews, and uh, proselytes from Crete, and even Arabia. Now just think about that. Think of the breadth of cultures that are just mentioned here. Okay? And this is, I think there's probably more, because he, he says, from every nation under heaven. And they're all gathered here in the city of Jerusalem. What an amazing thing. Think about the diversity that would have been uh, represented in that group. And you know what? They, they, many of them probably spoke Greek, the, the lingua franca, the, the trade language of the era. But they all had a heart tongue, a heart language that they grew up speaking. And they were listening, they were hearing these, these, uh, these apostles speak the gospel, the marvelous, wonderful things that God had done in their heart language. In their heart language. Okay, not their second language, their heart language. And what was interesting, these were simple speakers, right? These guys weren't linguists from the, uh, from the PhDs from the university, uh, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. These guys were from Galilee. <laughs> they were from Galilee, which made it even more amazing and I think from, for the Jew from Jerusalem, think about the Galileans, you know. It's kind of like somebody from Grand Rapids thinking about somebody from Hopkins. Okay? I'm from Hopkins, so I can say that. But, so, you know, they, what good can come from Nazareth, right? Uh, well, what good can come from Hopkins, right? Well, you know, and, and so, so God uses anybody, right? God uses anybody. And he, he puts these simple guys... And now, there were many languages going on. Uh, in this conversation, you probably would have heard Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, forms of Farsi, that would be Persian, Persian, 
Aramaic, Turkish, Latin, Egyptian, perhaps Siri, a Berber language in Libya. Uh, in fact, there was probably other languages like Akkadians, maybe some Indo-European languages, some Slavic tongues, perhaps some forms of Hindi. This microcosm of people represented the entire world. And there were people and languages and cultures and customs from the West and the Middle East, parts of Africa, all the way over to Central Asia, Europe, and so forth, okay? Both the people and their native languages were, and their cultures as well, were extremely diverse. So let's review what God did here. He gathers this small group of, people, of believers, fills them with the Holy Spirit in such a way that they can speak foreign languages that they have not studied or maybe even heard. Meanwhile, he's sovereignly brought people together from the entire known world to this very city. Then he turns these witnesses loose with the power of the Holy Spirit. Wow. And that's how it began. That's how this began. Okay? That's how the church began. The reactions were mixed. You know, some, everybody was amazed and perplexed, and some were skeptical, of course. So then Peter stands up, gives an explanation in the form of a powerful sermon, preaching the undeniable truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by the end of the day, this group grew from 120 people to 3,000 and some. Okay, so uh, what an amazing story. Now, I, I, I know that we probably shouldn't look to Acts for our church polity and, and our church practice always, but it was an unusual era of the, the, the life of the church. However, there are some things that I think we can legitimately gain and glean from this unusual event that will help us today accomplish our mission in God's world. So number one, observation number one, the church from its outset, has been diverse. There's three observations here. Number one, the church from its outset has been diverse. Okay? Uh, think about the diversity in this initial group. There was linguistic diversity. There was cultural diversity. There was economic diversity, for sure. Many of these people were either travelers with the money to do so, or perhaps immigrants, or maybe refugees, probably poor, trying to carve out a living in a new city, culture, and language. And uh, even the 12 disciples were from out of town and probably didn't have good jobs. I mean, you know, there's not a lot of fishing to be done on Mount Zion. So these were mixed in, they, they were mixed in with with uh, Jewish people that were probably more established and had, some, had accumulated some wealth. So we have economic diversity in this group. We have religious diversity. Many, uh, these may have all been Jews or converts to Judaism, but do you think all of the synagogue, synagogues across the then-known world always did everything the same? I mean, they, they had certain things that were ritual, rituals that they followed, but do you think they all did it the same, right? you think every... Uh, synagogue in every land sang their, uh, their psalms with the same kind of rhythm? Or do you think there were different kinds of rhythms? Or maybe different customs? Or maybe different ways of dressing? Or maybe different ways of wearing your hair? Or maybe different ways of, of speaking? Or, and not just linguistic, but, and maybe, maybe different, uh, different eating customs? And maybe different ways of treating hygiene? A lot of different issues going on here. Uh, but the, the church had never, the church, 
This is how the church began. And it was never designed to be homogeneous, to be a hangout for people who all think, act, and live the same. This initial group was dramatically diverse in so many ways. And we don't have to read too, read too much further in the book to, to see that this caused some serious rifts. Look at Acts chapter 6, verse 1. There's already some difficult things that happen when, we, when you try to combine cultures, right? But the church, from its outset to its end, is to be a place where people from every nation, tribe, people, and language gather in diverse but unified joy and harmony to worship the, Lord, the Lamb and serve their God. So the church began as a very diverse group, and it will end as a very diverse group. Okay? Like it or not, <laughs> this is us. Okay? This is what God created. And this is the church. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. I, I wish you could be with me in my office. Even, I mean, we're missing traveling. We can't travel during COVID. But just be able to, to, to be able to converse with people from different cultures and languages. And, and oh, what a, what a rich thing we're involved in called the church of Jesus Christ. It's just glorious. And it's so diverse and so wonderful. And we need to revel in that. Well, observation number two, diversity in the church contributes powerfully to its witness. Now think about the significance of the gospel being spoken in a variety of known languages in Acts 2. This diversity alone must have been a huge factor in the initial growth of the church. People could understand the good news that forgiveness and eternal life was available to them. That this thing was just not only for, for Jewish, traditional Jews that lived there in Jerusalem, but this was for me. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ was something that, that I can understand in my language, in my, in my heart, and, and, and they're letting me in on this deal. Forgiveness, freedom in Christ, new life, eternal life with Jesus. This resurrected one who, who has just blown the minds of everybody in Jerusalem. Well, they're hearing this in their own heart language. So that diversity alone uh, enabled this witness to happen. Okay? The church, would, it, it, it facilitated the witness of the church. Now, Jesus said the night before he died, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment, uh, not yet, anyway, but a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, by this love, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love. For who? For unsaved people? Well, we should, un we should love unsaved people, but the text says, for one another. Often we share this verse and we... We, we talk about having love towards our unbelieving friends. And we should love our unbelieving friends like Jesus loved them. But notice who the love is directed towards. It's towards one another. That is, it is our love for one another within the body of Christ that speaks loudly to the world. Especially when genuine love is expressed towards people in our body, in our church, that are different than me. Okay, that are different than you, that are different than us. 
when we learn to love one another in spite of our diversity or because of our diversity, even when we're different than one another, when we learn to love and, and practice the kind of love that is abnormal, okay, that speaks loudly. Jesus says that's going to speak loudly to the world. And that's the kind of community that will draw them in. So if our church is made up of only people like us, who think, dress, act, talk like us, how is that different than what happens in other clubs in society? If everybody in our church is similar to me, how is this a testimony to the world? If we all share the same political views, economic views, life views, and don't tolerate dissenting opinions, what does this communicate to the world? Okay? And, and, but if, if we learn to love one another, even with our differences, and I'm not talking about you know, things that are clear in the scripture, but those differences that we have, even personality differences, if we can learn to love one another, you know, somebody from the outside might hear about this, and they might say, wow, that church really, if they love like that, maybe they could, maybe they could love me. Maybe I would be welcome there. Observation number three, a key to the testimony of the church is unity in diversity. Unity in diversity. Uh, let me just read one, one scripture in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But look at verse 7. So unity, 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 right? Unity, unity, unity. But grace was given to each one, each individual of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Diversity. Okay? Unity, one body, but many members. Unity, diversity kind of reminds us of who God is, right? Tri, un, unified, one God, existing in three persons. That's how the church is supposed to be. One body, existing in multiple, multiple manifestations, and in all different kinds of gifts and, and, and members, and, and people should be different. It should be diverse, but we should be unified, okay? The key uh, look at what Jesus said in, what he prayed in John 17, again, before he left, just before he, he died and paid for our sins on the cross. In John 17, verse 20, it says, I do not ask for these only, he's praying to the Father, but also for those who would believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, just as you Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe. Okay? So this is part of our testimony. A unified church with diversity can be a strong testimony to the world. I mean, this is not usual. People who would normally not hang out together are actually friends, right? I mean, they get along with one another, they welcome one another, they wait patiently for one another, they truly care for one another, they comfort one another, they live in peace with one another, they help and serve one another, they bear with one another, they are kind to one another, they forgive one another, and so forth, and all those one another's in the New Testament. If, you were, if we're living like that, what a testimony this will be 
to the church around us. If the church really loves people, anybody, not just their kind, uh, that's going to speak loudly to the world. You know, I, I shared this with the early, the, the, the early service as well. You guys are looking for a pastor. And Pastor Spencer, you, you would agree with this, I think, as well. That, you know, it's, it's been a hassle all the logistics of COVID, these masks and these cleanings and these separations and, and all this stuff, it's hard. It's, it's weary, wearying on pastors. But what really gets a pastor down, what, really, what is hardest for a pastor, hands down, now I grew up in a pastor's home and I was a pastor for 20 years, right? What's the, the hardest thing for a pastor is disunity in the church. That's what keeps us up at night, okay? That's what keeps us up at night. That's what hurts most, disunity. If you guys want to, to be the kind of church that will attract just the right pastor that will lead you on and be the kind of church, not just to get a pastor, but to, to, to really uh, minister to this, continue to minister to this, uh, this community, unity is so important. The best thing you can do, one of the best things you can do in preparation for a new pastor is to be unified. One of the best things you can do for your community is to be unified. One of the best things you can do for your missionaries is to be unified. If you're disunified, we lose our power, our ability to do stuff for God, right? So unity is so critical. But we celebrate our unity understanding that we're different, and we revel in that. We celebrate that. Hear me carefully. We celebrate in the church. We should be the first to celebrate diversity. Diversity within the bounds of Scripture. But we celebrate that micro-diversity. Well, often when we think about diversity, we think about racial differences, or we think about cultural differences and so forth. What about that micro-level, where there's just some personality differences between me and you, or some lifestyle differences between me and you, but, you know, we're going to choose to love each other anyway. We're going to kind of work at that relationship a little bit more and, and see what God does with it, right? That's the kind of unity that really speaks to the world. That's supernatural unity, only facilitated by the Holy Spirit. And that's the church. That's the church. God's idea for the church is not that we all be similar, similar life experience, similar identity, similar causes, similar needs, similar social positions, similar political views, etc. If that were true, where is the spirit in that? However, when Christians unite around the gospel, they create a, a, a community that is unusual, rare, in fact, supernatural. And this is compelling. There, what, what, our, what, our, what the community around, the unsafe community around you cr craves more than anything, and I hear this over and over again, is, is not cool music and relevant sermons and a cool website, you know? That what they really want out of a church is community. What really is drawing people to the church of Jesus Christ today is not, those ex not necessarily those things, but it's that community that they feel when they come in. Because that doesn't exist out there, okay? And people are lonely, and people are looking for it. And we can be a huge testimony to our, to our community and, and, and draw people in through our own unity. So look around again. Look around again. Look around again. And I ask you, now th this is your family, okay? You online, think about those people I, that are in this church, okay? And this is your family, like it or not. This is your family. Now, think about those people that you are not necessarily drawn towards. 
where your friendship wouldn't be normal. You know, we, we just wouldn't be a natural friendship necessarily. This is not a bad thing. This is a good thing. Well, maybe you could work at that relationship a little bit more. You know, try to get to know who that person, what makes them tick, and revel, revel in this diversity. And perhaps as you talk about that kind of community that you have in this church, perhaps there will be people that you're talking to and they'll hear about it. You talk about your friend? You guys are friends? Why are you friends? You're so different. <laughs> oh, you know, we, we have something in common. It's called Jesus. It's called the good news of the gospel and he's transformed us and we're different. Yeah, we're different as night as day. But you know what? We, we love each other. It's just great. You know, somebody might think, Wow, if that church can love like that, maybe they could love me. Maybe they could love me. 